This is a first of a three-part series on Jewish attitudes about death and dying and grief and afterlife and related subjects. This week, next week, and then there's one in December sometime. There's a, a famous story of the kids who uh, had a pet cat, and the pet cat got sick, and they prayed for their cat to get better, but the cat died, as animals tend to do. And, you know, they were very upset, obviously. It was their pet. So they decided that they wanted to go ask their rabbi why their pet died and why God didn't save their pet when they were praying to God to save their pet. So uh, they turned out the rabbi wasn't at the synagogue, but the rabbi was having coffee at the local coffee place, like Starbucks. So they went there because they heard the rabbi was there and two little kids and they walked in and they told the rabbi, you know, and we have this question. Can we talk to you? And of course, the rabbi said, sure. Put down, in this case, his coffee and whatever and said, what, what's the question? And they said, we, our cat was sick and we prayed for our cat. And the cat died. Why didn't God heal the cat when we prayed? So the rabbi took a deep breath and launched into a long theological explanation about life and death and prayer. And the kids sat there and listened. Rabbi finished whatever the rabbi was saying and picked up his coffee cup. And kids walked out of the coffee shop and one turned to the other and said, so he doesn't know either. (laughs) Uh, because you know it's one of the great mysteries of life the the Talmud says without asking you you were formed without asking you you were born without asking you you live and without asking you you will die referring to the reality of what life is we come into the world and we live our lives and some of our lives are shorter and some of our lives are longer and regardless even if we live to the the, Mo, the Moses ideal of 120, we're all going to die. We all know that. Um, and we all experience grief. And we all experience loss. Uh, nobody gets out of this world, unless you die really young, um, without experiencing loss. It's fundamental to the human experience. Um, and consequently... There's a very thick book called Jewish Views of the Afterlife that traces Jewish views of the afterlife, starting in biblical times and forward, some of which I'm going to share with you um, during this these three sessions. But, you know, life and death is, has been the eternal mystery for everyone and in every culture. You know, I walk around with this bracelet, as some of you know, all the time, got one, two, three, four, one, two, the five religious symbols on it from Judaism and Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism. And and I walk around with it all the time because I happen to be one of those people who believe that human beings are fundamentally the same. Though so in our different cultures and our different life experiences individually and as groups formed different 
rituals and traditions and customs with whatever labels we put on them, Judaism and Christianity and Islam and whatever. Um, but all of us are responding to the same fundamental issues and questions of life. How did we get here? And where did we get here? And why did we get here? And where are we going? And what's it all mean? And how do you create a life that matters and a life of meaning? And that everybody fundamentally wants those things and and wrestles with those questions at different times in their lives. And, you know, human beings are, as I often have said, if you've been in any of my classes ever, I suppose, that our great superpower as human beings is that we are meaning makers. That's our superpower. We make meaning out of everything. We somehow can't stand having things not mean something. And so we create meaning out of the experiences of our lives. We often look back on our lives with brilliant 2020 hindsight and say, ah, see, that's why that happened, because this happened, and that this would have only happened if that had happened, and that only happened because that happened, and now it all makes sense. You know, uh, most people I know do that at some version of that with their lives, tracing back their lives and going, oh, see, now it all makes some kind of sense. I ended up, even though I got divorced, and that was horrible, I ended up meeting this person that I am now living with and I'm in love with. Even though I lost that job, that was a nightmare, and I thought it was the worst thing that happened to me. Only because of that, I ended up in this job that I actually like. Things like that. Stories like that, because we're meaning makers and storytellers, and, we, and our lives mean what we say they mean. You know? And ritual objects, customs, traditions have meaning because we say they do. You know, what's a candle? Candle is a wick in wax that you can light, and there's a flame. But it's very different if it's a birthday candle or if it's a yardside candle, but it's just a candle. What does it mean? It means different things because we say so, not because inherently it has any meaning. We we are like the Harry Potters of the world, and we wave our magic wands, and we go, that's what it means. You know, and a... Kiddush cup is a Kiddush cup because we say so, and suddenly it's a sacred object. And it, if it's here in the sanctuary, it's probably made out of silver and looks beautiful. If it's when I was 10 at summer camp, Jewish summer camp, and it was Shabbat, and I was hanging out under the tree with a bunch of kids, and we were singing Shabbat songs, and I put some grape juice in a Dixie cup, suddenly the Dixie cup, and I went, Baruch and suddenly the Dixie cup was a Kiddush cup. Like, boom, it's a sacred object. And that's the reality with pretty much everything we do, even as we're about to wrestle with some of the most challenging and difficult issues of life, life's issues of life and death. Um, and I often tell couples that when I'm meeting with them before a wedding, telling them, okay, here, I'll tell you the rituals that are sort of traditional Jewish rituals, but somebody made them all up. If you don't want to do one of them or you want to do something else, as far as I'm concerned, perfectly fine. They don't have inherent meaning. They have meaning because we say so. So, and and all the rituals and customs and holidays and traditions are going to be a holiday tomorrow, not a Jewish one, but uh, there is a holiday tomorrow. I think it's called Halloween. Um, 
because we make it up. You know, in all of our Jewish holidays and everybody's holidays and everybody's rituals, somebody made up. Unless you're an Orthodox fundamentalist in which you think God, some supernatural being, commanded it. But we don't. Well, I don't. I, I don't know what all of you think, but I don't. I'm, as far as I'm concerned, human beings created all of the rituals and all of the customs and all the traditions of every religion, including Judaism, um, as the unique response of our people in beginning thousands of years ago in our trek through history, in our peoples and our ancestors, even to today, still creating rituals, uh, response to trying to make meaning and sense out of life and try to separate out the every day from the extraordinary and the special. After all, what is Shabbat? It's we have six days that are the ordinary days, and then we designate one and say, this is our most sacred day. Of And here's a bunch of rituals that help remind us that it's a sacred day. And when you enter into a marriage with somebody, all the weddings that I do, often still, somebody puts a ring on and says, if they do it a traditional Jewish way, and puts a ring on a bride and says, Hare at mikudeshedli, which basically means, behold, you are set apart. You are made holy, sanctified, which literally in Hebrew means set apart from everybody else. I have all these other relationships with men, women, or whomever, but yours is special. Yours is set apart from everybody else. That's what the marriage thing is about, saying, okay, this is a unique relationship. And that's what holiness is in Jewish life. It's unique, set apart from. There's the everyday, and then there's the sacred, which is that which we set apart. Whether it's an object, or whether it's a day, whether it's a holiday, whether it's a festival, um, that's what we do. So um, there's a story in the Talmud about Rabbi Nachman lay dying, and his best friend, who was also a rabbi, in Talmud named Rava. Rava said, when you die, because he was dying, show yourself to me after you die. And so Rabbi Nachman died, and according to the story in the Talmud, he in fact did appear to Rava in a dream the next day. And in the dream, Rava asked Rabbi Nachman, who had just died, was it painful? Did you suffer a lot of pain in dying? Rabbi Nachman, famously in the Talmud, answered, it was as easy as taking a hair from a pitcher of milk. But, said Rabbi Nachman, if God were to say, okay, go back to the world as you were before, I wouldn't want to go because the fear of death is actually greater than dying. Which I always thought was a rather powerful little Talmudic story about the reality of our anxieties and fears about death. That, in fact, in Jewish traditional language, the fear of it is actually worse than the dying of it. So let me begin with two prayers that are illustrative of Jewish attitudes about death, dying, and life. The first one is, traditionally, the first prayer you're supposed to say when you wake up in the morning which begins, Modani lefanecha, it's one sentence, Modani lefanecha, melechai v'kayam, you don't have it in front of you, shechazartabi nishmati v'chemla, rabba emunatecha. That prayer literally says, Modani lefanecha, thank you, I give thanks before you, lefanecha, 
ruler of the universe, who has returned to me my soul, my nishama, which is my soul, who has returned to me my soul, the chemla, with faithfulness, with gracefulness, great is your faithfulness. That's the order of it. So this is the traditional prayer you're supposed to say when you wake up in the morning. It's, thank you, God, for giving me my soul back. More than just thank you for giving me my soul back, it's thank you for giving me my soul back because you have faith in me. That's really a remarkable prayer because it's our ancestors who wrote this prayer. Nobody knows who literally wrote the prayer exactly. I'm a rabbi somewhere. It's our ancestors believing that every night when you sleep, your soul departs hangs out with God, and when you wake up, it's because God decided you're worth waking up for another day. It's like an amazing thought to say that every day, to wake up and go, Rabbi Amunatecha, great is your faithfulness in me that I'm going to matter today somehow, and that that's why I'm here. I mean, if you really thought that, and really internalize that, it's like every day is not only a divine gift, but it's as if a promise, oh, I'm going to make, I have to make this day worthwhile, because God trusted that I would do that. That's why I'm still alive today. And God didn't just go, okay, you're done. And I go to sleep, and that's it. I never wake up. So traditional Judaism believed every day is rebirth. And every day is not just rebirth, it's rebirth with a purpose. It's rebirth because the power that gives life itself, God, in our tradition, trusts me to make a difference in the world in some way, that I'm worthy of being alive. You know, self-worth is a big issue in life, after all. All of us wrestle with it in different ways, different times in our lives, feeling worthwhile or not, looking around, comparing ourselves to everybody else. That's the great scourge of the internet and social media and all that is everybody posting their, you know, their best reels or whatever they call it. Um, And then you're looking at that and going, oh, everybody else is having a good time but me. You know, everybody else looks great except for me, although I do like this jacket. (laughs) Everybody, you know, it's like, and... You know, if you watch that that famous uh, documentary on the internet, what was it called? Famous documentary on internet. Anyway, it's social media that was made by all the former employees of Facebook and all those companies that did it. Um, can't remember what it was called, but social hmm? network. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But one of them, the <clears throat> the guy who who was the inventor of like, you know, the you can like yeah. guy who invented that was on talking about how I had no idea about the unintended consequences. It was a different thing, but I'll think of it. Anyway, it didn't matter. And he was talking about, you know, it seemed like such a great idea. You People post things and you could just say, yeah, that was, you know, I like it. That was great. Who knew that that or, the, or that or the lack of that was going to cause teenage girls to kill themselves, right? Cut themselves, hurt themselves, that the number of likes or lack of the number of likes would suddenly be the determiner of their value and self-worth. 
Judaism goes, Mo Dani Lefanecha, thank you, God. I'm here. I have fundamental self-worth before I step out of bed, in theory. Okay. Number two. Now you do have this one, those who are here. And we could post it on the chat, I believe, for those of you who are online. This prayer, Elohai Nishama. Because the second thing you're supposed to say, well, second or third thing, prayer you're supposed to say in Jewish tradition that is a reflection of our attitude about life and death and afterlife is this prayer, which is called Elohai Nishama. And this version that I have that I passed out to those of you who are here in person um, is the Reconstructionist version, which is slightly different than the traditional one. But I'll share both of them. And the the prayer says, Elohim Neshama Shinatatabi Tohorahi. God, the soul, Neshama, back to that same, the soul you gave me came pure from you. All right, already we're back to self-worth. Imagine. Every day, you're supposed to, this is what Jewish tradition teaches. You're supposed to say this prayer every day after you thank God for giving you your soul back. Just thank you, God, for trusting me. Then you say, by the way, this, that soul that you gave me came pure from you. It's not polluted. There's not something wrong with it. It's pure. Who I am, the essence of me, my neshama, my soul is pure. You created it. You shaped it, you breathed it into me, and you preserve it deep inside of me. And someday you will take it from me, restoring me it to everlasting life. Interesting thought, which we'll get to in a moment. But this prayer suggests there is some kind of eternal nature of the soul that you're supposed to say in Jewish tradition every day. That at some point you're going to take my soul into eternal life. Okay? However, all the time, as long as that neshama, that soul is still in me, this translation says, as long as the spirit breathes in me, I give thanks before you. Our God and God of our ancestors, um, Master of all deeds, Source of all life, Baruch Ata Adonai, Blessed are you, Asher Biado Nefesh Kol Chai Baruch Kol Basar. The Reconstructionist version says, "In whose possession is the breath of every living thing and the animation of all flesh." The traditional version ends. Baruch Ata Adonai, blessed are you, God, Hamachazir Nishamot Lefegarim Metim, which means who returns souls into dead bodies. That's the traditional version. What does that mean? Exactly what it sounds like. This prayer was written at a time, probably in the Middle Ages, when, in fact, what was very popular among Jewish theology and thought and philosophy was resurrection, resurrection of the body physically. There's this whole long, rather extensive literature in traditional Judaism, you can find it in this book and other places, that suggests when the end of days comes, that is, when the Messiah eventually shows up, and 
lions lie down with lambs and everything, and people stop killing us, things like that. Um, all those who are dead will get revived. Well, one theory, all Jews who are dead will get revived and end up back in Jerusalem, in Israel, where we all belong. <clears throat> the rapture, they call Well, that's what Christians call it. They call it a rapture. It's kind of a different version of the same thing, except for only those who believe in Jesus will be raptured and the rest of us will go to hell. So it's kind of a different, little different nature. But similarly, because reincarnation is popular in many religions, after all, some version of everlasting life, some version of reincarnation. And, you know, look, Jews and Judaism which is always evolving, part of the evolution of Jewish civilization depends on where we're living and what our majority culture is. After the Romans destroyed the temple in the year 70, and the majority of Jews in Israel were spread, taken into exile, and eventually wandered around the world, in spite of what um, some people say, that we've always been there in Israel ever since, but a different story and, and a different conversation. In any event, so ever since that time, we've been the minority in majority cultures until 1948, when, in fact, the state of Israel got recreated. Um, and ever since the ingathering of what we call the ingathering of exiles of Jews from all over the world into Israel. So between for the last previous 2,000 years, Jews were all over the world. There were always Jews in Israel, but majority of Jews were all over the world. Because of that, we were subject to all the majority cultures in which we lived, and we soaked up and uh, adopted versions of what was common wisdom and knowledge and thought and theology and religion uh, by the majority culture in whatever country we happen to live in. Just like if you look at synagogues, and the architecture of synagogues, the architecture of synagogues all over the world reflected what was going on in that country. You know, in Muslim countries, look like mosques. In Christian countries, look like churches. You know, and even here in America, we original look at Wilshire Boulevard Temple, if you want to see it, or go to New York and go to Temple Emmanuel, these big cathedrals that were built to mimic the Christian cathedral kind of look that that's what a sacred space should look like, because that's what the, that was the sort of height of what sacred spaces should look like. And we did that all over the world. We did the same thing with with ideas and philosophies and theology, so that when in the Middle Ages in particular, ideas of reincarnation became very popular in the world, Jews took it on too. As we took on issues of heaven and hell, because in Judaism, traditionally, there's no hell. We don't have eternal punishment. But in the Middle Ages, in Europe, when it was very popular, you know, Dante's Infernos and all those things, Jews also started talking about, well, you know, if you're bad in this world, you're going to get punished. And we started, the, the, a minority opinion of Jewish theology was that there would be punishment in hell, some kind of a Gehenom um, as well. That certainly didn't exist in the Torah. Because when you look in the Torah, there's very little about what happens after you die. There has always been, always, from the beginning, from Torah on, there's always been the notion that there's something after this. 
but it's never been clear exactly what. We have this notion in Hebrew called the Olam Haba, the world to come. In the Torah, it's being gathered to your kin. That's the phrase that pops up when Abraham dies and Isaac dies and Jacob dies. As people die in the Torah, they are physically buried in caves, like the cave of Machpelah that Abraham bought in Israel, um, because they had burial caves. That's what people did. And the language of the Torah is that people would be gathered to their kin. And without any explanation, because the Torah is relatively terse, actually, in its narratives. So we don't really even know what they meant thousands of years ago with that phrase. Where were their kin? Could have literally been, well, we buried them in the cave. You, you, We put you in the cave, too, with your parents and their parents in the same burial cave, so you're being gathered to your kin. Or, as most people suggest, there was some expectation of afterlife, but nobody knew what it was, and so nobody described it other than wherever they went, you go. I mean, they went somewhere, you go somewhere. You know, so there's been this notion of we have bodies, but we're not our bodies. We're much more than our bodies. I mean, it's been that notion because everybody knows that from our everyday real life experience. My body's changing all the time. I'm 74. I don't have the same body I had 20 years ago. I keep forgetting that, but and trying to do things that I used to be able to do and suddenly go, oh, that hurts. I forget that I have a 74-year-old body. You know, it's not the same as it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, because like all the rest of you in my mind, I'm something much younger than I actually am. It's the way we are. Because who I am is not this body. This body is carrying me around, but this is not who I am. This is just the form I'm taking, which is why we talk about a nishama, a soul that's separate from the goof, which is our body, the physicality of our bodies, all of us. And in our tradition, look, I say this around death and dying and funerals all the time when I meet with families who are going through the grief of loss, that one of the things we all experience in our everyday lives is that when you have a relationship with someone, when you love someone, when you have a relationship with them, it's not with their body. You may like someone's body. I mean, theoretically, you have a partner or spouse or whatever. Theoretically, you like their body, but that's not what your relationship is with. Your relationship is with them that has a body, who have a body. Because if it was with their body, every time someone you know left the room, they'd cease to exist for you. That's a silly idea, right? So whether the someone you know or someone you love is next door, in the room next door, or whether they're in another house, or whether they're across the country, or whether they're in another country, or they're no longer on the planet, it doesn't diminish your relationship with them. Somebody dies, love doesn't die, and relationships don't die. Just their body stops working, their heart stops working. That's what death is. Their body stops functioning. But it's not like when you write on a whiteboard or a blackboard or whatever board and you wipe it off, that's not what relationships are. And that doesn't happen when someone dies. You know, you don't just, they don't just disappear. The relationship doesn't disappear. They may not be there. The relationship continues forever. 
and evolves and changes all the time. That's part of the whole grief process. It's part of the whole life process. That's that's fundamental to the nature of relationships. And because we know that, because we've all experienced that, it's not something that we think about. It's not a philosophy. It's not a theology. It's our experience. Everybody, you know, you have kids, they go away to college somewhere, if you're lucky, and they go away to college somewhere. You know, your relationship doesn't disappear because they're not in your house anymore. It's just as connected to them, right? Just in a different different ways. So because we know that, therefore, the theology that emerges from every religion is, oh, well, we must have a body and a soul because the soul is that relationship that we have that's not our physicality, that doesn't depend on space and time and place. That's with whom we have that relationship. And so we then posit from that, oh, well, I must have that too. I must have this part of me that is not my body. Therefore, it's kind of like, uh, what's that kind of physics where it doesn't matter? Never mind, different story. Um, it's like quantum spirituality. That's what it is. It's quantum spirituality. It's a good phrase. I think I just invented it. Anyway, quantum spirituality is the recognition that our spirit, our essence, our neshama in Hebrew does not depend on physicality at all and is here and will be here. You know, you all know my mother died. I've talked about it enough. My mother died this year at, at 100. And although I'm still constantly going to make phone calls to her that I stop myself because she's not there anymore and something happens and I, my first instinct is I've got to tell mom, you know, because that's what happens to us when someone we love dies because our brains, by the way, if you ever want to really got a good understanding of how our brains function in grief, read the book, The Grieving Brain. Now I forgot who wrote it. The woman who wrote it. Anyway, Grieving Brain is not on this list because uh, it's all Jewish stuff. But The Grieving Brain is a brilliant book. Mary, I'll think of it. Anyway, that's the title. It's called The Grieving Brain. And it literally, she literally traces how our brains function in grief. Part of what happens in our brains and why, we're, why I'm always reaching for the phone is that my brain, for now 74 years, you know, I was lucky enough to have a parent alive until I was 74. You know, it's like amazing, right? My brain is programmed literally to expect her to be alive. So even though my rationality knows that my mother died, my father died, they're not here anymore, my brain doesn't actually know that because my brain is still programmed as if my mom's in Sacramento, you know, and that's part of the whole grief process is reprogramming literally your brain to understand slowly takes time slowly that the reality has shifted because at the moment still I'm still in my first year. My brain doesn't know that. I know it, but my brain doesn't. So my brain keeps functioning in the same way that it's been functioning literally. I mean, not philosophically, but physically, literally that's the synapses are going Brilliant book, Grieving Brain. That's it. Mary Frances O'Connor. Thank you. I knew it was a Mary. That was pretty good. I'm I'm impressed I remembered that. Mary Frances O'Connor. Fabulous book, Grieving Brain. Um, In any event. So we talk about, we all talk about grief because everybody experiences it. I'm going to share with you 
a poem that I love about grief. It's called Blessing for a Broken Vessel. It goes like this. It's by uh, Jan Richardson. And she wrote, Do not despair. You hold the memory of what it was to be whole. It lives deep in your bones. It abides in your heart that has been torn and mended a hundred times. It persists in your lungs that know the mystery of what it means to be full, empty, to be full again. I'm not asking you to give up your grip on the shards you clasp so close to you, but to wonder what it would be like for those jagged edges to meet each other in some new pattern that you have never imagined, that you have never dared to dream. I love that song. It's part of our human challenge of dealing with loss and grief, Jewish, Christian, or anybody, the human nature of the brokenness and the putting the pieces of the brokenness back together in our own unique ways, given our own unique lives and the relationships that we're wrestling with. So this, these two prayers that I began with, the Moda'ani, thank you, God, for giving me my soul back, and Elohim Shama, two fundamental traditional morning prayers that you're supposed to say, thank you, God, for giving me my soul back, and this assertion that eventually God's going to take my soul from me into eternal life, you know, I will ask you, what do you, what does that say about Jewish attitudes about life and death, do you think? What is, you know, who wrote these prayers? What did they believe when they wrote these prayers? What do you think? Anybody in the room? Like they believe in some kind of afterlife, but I thought we didn't. Yeah, right. Well, that's what I'm sharing with you, because we clearly have believed in an afterlife forever. From biblical times to today, in every incarnation of Judaism, there's been some version of Olam Haba, a world to come. My question, why aren't we taught that? Why aren't we? Well, I'm teaching it to you right now. Well, I know, but I think... (laughs) I talk about it. We talk about it here, I think. You know, look, I tell you why. Because in the... 40s and 50s and 60s of the 20th century in American non-Orthodox Jewish life, which is what most American Jews grew up in, Reformed, Conservative, and a few Reconstructionists on the side, but most of, most of us grew up in either Reform or Conservative congregations. And you have to remember uh, a couple of things. In the 20th century, particularly post-Holocaust, in the 20th century, uh, when Jews were desperate to be accepted in America. I guess we're going to be doing that all over again, trying to be accepted in America. But in the meantime, also for another conversation, um, we created one of the greatest PR coups of all time. In the 50s and 60s, what you would hear, people would get up and talk about religion in America, and they would talk about Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. If you went to a um, uh, government or a civic organization 
that had clergy come and give an opening prayer, it would be Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. Be a minister, a priest, and a rabbi. You know, a minister, a priest, and a rabbi walked into a bar, and they all said, ouch. No. Okay. So, the you know, that's, I mean, think about it. Protestants, Catholics, and Jews, as if we are one-third of America. We've always been a teeny little piece. Of, we're 2% of America, right? little teeny piece. You ask, and people have, average person on the street who's not Jewish, how many Jews do you think there are in the, in the United States? They think we're one-third of the country. Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. On the one hand, a great PR. On the other hand, not so great. But because the reality is we think we have all this power because we're so powerful. We're loud, but we're not that powerful. We're just loud. And very small. You know, it's like 10 Jews in the world. 8 billion people out there. We got 15, 16 million Jews. It's like ridiculous. In any event, and in America, in in our attempt at being accepted, we imitated the norm, religious norms of liberal religion in America. We built synagogues that looked like churches in many ways. We dressed that way. The rabbis wore robes like priests and ministers and priests did in America when I was ordained. I was ordained in a robe. We still, I still wear a robe on, on uh, high holidays, but I used to wear a black robe every Friday night when I was first ordained. I used to wear a black robe with three stripes because I got a PhD. I used to wear a black robe when I did weddings. I was robed because that was like what clergy wore to look like a clergy person. And in liberal Jewish life in America, both in the reform and conservative movements, which was the majority of Jews, we taught rather also internally to be help separate ourselves from Christians, Christianity, which was the major religion in America and still is the major religion in America, that what Jews believe in is the here and now. And we live on in the memories of those who cherish our memories. We live on in the acts of goodness that we, it's in the prayer book, in the traditional prayer book, anyway, actually in the Reform and Conservative prayer book. We live on the acts of goodness we performed in our lifetime. We discounted and played down theologies of afterlife because Christians believed in heaven and hell. And we weren't them. And so, and also because these views of the afterlife that I'm talking about were pretty much not explicit. I mean, we talked about the Olam Haba, the world to come, but not really clearly descriptions of heaven and hell like they have in, in traditional Christian theology. And so in the, particularly in the reform movement, which became the biggest movement, but also in the conservative movement, our passion for social justice and our fighting for the underdog and all that we did allowed us, drove us into a position where we said, this is how you live on. This is what afterlife is. It's you living on in the hearts of those who cherish your memories and in the acts of goodness that you perform. Um, not there'll be pie in the sky by and by, which is another theological position. That wasn't our position. So therefore, and that's what I grew up with. And going to the Reform Congregation in Santa Monica, that's Shalom, what I learned when I was a kid, you know, I don't believe in the afterlife, as you said, because we didn't have a detailed description of heaven and hell, and we didn't believe it. And we haven't actually, except for a really narrow amount of time in the Middle Ages with a 
minority of Jews who decided to be talk about hell and punishment. The majority of Jews never believed in that and never taught that. Taught that when you die, just like this prayer Elohim Shama says, when I die, you're going to take me back, my soul back, God. So we believed everybody got to go to God afterwards. Whatever the afterlife was going to be, it was going to be returning to the source of where we came from. No, if you read the Talmud, there are lots of stories about afterlife and things in the Talmud and hanging out with God. And because there were rabbis who wrote it, the ideal of the afterlife is you get to sit around and study Torah. That's, you know, there were rabbis who wrote this stuff. So, oh boy, you don't have to worry about making a living or eating or drinking or having sex or doing anything. You can, oh yeah, my daughter was very upset. I told a story on Arab Rosh Hashanah and kept using the word sex. She said, don't ever use that again, please. So, um, in any event, so the ideal was whoever made the story up. They were rabbis whose ideal in life was study. So that's what you got when you died. You got to go hang out with God and study. God was the ultimate teacher, you know, study. Um, because we never had explicit, but we always had this notion that there's something beyond this. Back to the idea of a, a nishama, a soul, because we knew that we were more than our bodies. Our bodies are changing every second. Can't be that. Can't be just our bodies, because I'm not the same body that I was 10 minutes ago. Things are changing in here all the time. Souls changing too, though? Or inner beings? Or... Well, this prayer and Jewish theology suggests that you have a core, your soul is at its core the same as when you came into this world. Pure, unadulterated, and then you do things in life that you may not be all totally proud of, but that's not what your soul is. Under there, this notion of fundamental spiritual self-worth starts in the Torah. You've heard me say this a thousand times. The very first thing it says about human beings in the Torah, in the first six days of creation story, God creates human beings, and the very first thing it says is they're created B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God. God created human beings in the image of God. And the rabbinic tradition and that we have inherited it to be Judaism for the last several thousand years, took those words that every human being is created in the image of God, didn't say only Jewish human beings, because there weren't any Jews yet when that was created. That story is pre-Abraham, who everybody acknowledged was the first Jew. So anything before that is all humanity. Right? The Noah story and Adam and Eve and all those stories are about humanity, not about Judaism. Only with Abraham do you get this biblically chosen particular seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. Before that, it's all humanity. So all human beings, in theory, are created in the divine image. doesn't say except. Except women, except gays, except people who speak a different language or whatever. We'll go there. But so everybody. So the rabbis believed that it's hard for me not to go there. Um, the rabbis believe that every human being, at your, which is what this Nishama thing, this Patsol talks about, is fundamentally created pure. You come from God pure. 
And yeah, we make mistakes and we screw up and we do things and that we shouldn't do. And some of us are evil, but no one's born evil, according to us. Everybody's born in God's image. And then they get screwed up. You know, there's a really interesting study that I read uh, about uh, people on death row. That something like 75% of the men on death row had brain injuries as children. Hello? <laughs> Our frontal lobe is what makes those good decisions in life or bad decisions in life. I mean, we have all those studies that talk about our frontal lobes aren't really form, completed until we're in our mid-20s or late 20s, right? And therefore, when you condemn some poor teenager to life in prison, you're, you know, they don't have the ability to make good choices always because their brain isn't, isn't formed yet totally. And there's this remarkable study that shows that like 75% of the murderers on death row had some kind of brain in it injury when they were younger. Like, hello? You know, in any event. Um, so we theologically, spiritually, religiously, in Judaism have always believed that human beings are fundamentally good, fundamentally pure. Notice this prayer that you're supposed to remind yourself of every day. You know, why do we have ritual? Like the ritual of saying these prayers. Why? Because we need to remind ourselves of things. The power of ritual is it holds up a mirror to us, you know, of who we can be and what we're supposed to be. So every time, if I wake up every morning, which I do, by the way, and I say, I train myself to say these in the shower. I take a shower every morning. So it triggers me. Oh, I get up, take a shower, and I say these prayers. My own ritual. Every morning, I'm reminding myself that in Jewish, according to Jewish theology, I'm valuable. I'm worthwhile. I have, I'm here for a reason. And it's up to me to find my reason and figure it out and act in a way that justifies God giving me back my soul this morning. That kind of a thought, you know? So it's like the power of gratitude. You know, we've all heard a million times that gratitude is how the attitude of gratitude is what makes your life worthwhile and meaningful. And some people do it every night before they go to bed. They write down three things they're grateful for. It's a good discipline. Or when they wake up in the morning or whatever, there's something I'm grateful for today. It changes your life. You know, if you get up in the morning and you're going, that's one thing. You get up in the morning and you go, thank you, God, for giving me back my soul and for trusting me. I'm a different person. The next step and how I relate to my wife, and everybody else, if that's how I begin my day. That's the power of ritual. That's why we have things in our tradition and every other religious tradition that are ritualized, do this, celebrate Shabbat, however you do it. You light candles, you say these words. You you know, my family growing up, we were, I mean, very synagogue-going form family. My parents were very synagogue-involved. You know, celebrate the holidays, but you know, like, like from families do. Every Friday night, six o'clock, we had Shabbat dinner. I have three sisters, old, two older, one younger, high school, this, doing, being in bands and doing all those things and going to football games and six o'clock Friday, we're sitting at the table having Shabbat. 
lighting the candle. My mother lit the candles. My father led the Kiddush. I usually ended up leading the Motsi, and we, and that was it. And we had Shabbat dinner. And then we did, went out and did whatever we did. At six o'clock, I'm sitting at that table on Friday night, every night, every week. Okay. So it was powerful. It was a powerful thing. You know, we used to, Didi and I used to give Gable, um, on Shabbat a blessing because that's, you know, one of the traditional things you do is you bless your, your kids. So we used to give Gable a blessing. Gable was not the easiest kid. We often had, uh, hostile interchanges between parent and child. Um, and I remember very clearly one of those Friday nights when uh, we sat down after a rather angry, heated interchange about who knows what, you know, and we were really pissed at her and she was pissed at us and whatever. And through gritted teeth, she said, Where's my blessing? <laughs> she was like 10. I mean, like 10 or 11 years old. It was like, you know, power of ritual. Power of ritual. Powerful. And in our tradition, our rituals are designed to reflect our theology as well. This ritual of saying these prayers every morning is a reflection of the theology that God gave us a soul, came from somewhere, and we are connected to something beyond ourselves, something bigger than ourselves, something sacred, not only all other human beings who are also made in God's image, in theory, in the image of the divine, but this notion in traditional Judaism of some kind of olam haba, world to come, that our souls are going to dwell in forever. Not counting the idea of reincarnation, which is, was a later thing that there also is, which I can talk about and will. So in Judaism, the basic notion is, of course, life and death go hand in hand. It's all over the everything. The recognition of the reality that everybody dies. Um, and, uh, you know, most funerals you'll hear some rabbi or somebody say, you know, from dust we came and to dust we return. But that's our physicality. We've also always believed that there's more than just that. Um, in the Torah, it refers to some place you go to, not just um, being drawn to your kin, but a place called Sheol in Hebrew. Uh, Sheol is this sort of netherworld kind of place. Ultimately, the rabbinic tradition saw it as a kind of way station between dying and returning to God, where you kind of get um, forgiven for whatever it is that you screwed up in. There are some of the rabbinic tradition that taught you, as with some other cultures, that in after you die, God plays for you your whole life. You get a kind of life review. You get to feel sorry for the things that you did that you feel sorry for, and you're done with that, and then you move on. You know, um, ideally, we do that while we're still living. Let me, uh, I'm watching the time, 
Those of you who are in the room, I asked you to take one of these green cards. Those of you online, you don't have a green card, but you can do it anyway. What I'd like you, those of you in the room to do is take a pen while you're here and write down at least one question that you would like me to talk about related to death, dying, grief, and afterlife. At least one question. Yeah, on that card, because I'm going to take it. You can write as many as you want, but I want you at least one. And if you're online and if you're planning on returning <laughs> to one of these classes, either next week or in December, I, I would appreciate it if you would also either write it in the chat because Rebecca said she'll collect it or my email, which is Rabbi Rubin at ourki.org, O-U-R-K-I.org, or send me an email with at least one or more questions about death, dying, afterlife in Jewish tradition that you would like me to address because that's what I'm going to address next week and the following week. So that what I'm talking about is something you're actually interested in rather than just what I do, which is start talking. I am the rabbinic version of the chatty Kathy doll. <laughs> which some of you probably know nothing about, but since I had three sisters, I grew up with chatty Kathy dolls. You no know, chatty Kathy dolls had a little string on the back and you pulled it and the doll spoke. And then you pulled it and the doll spoke. So I'm like that. I'm the rabbinic version of a chatty Kathy doll. Pull my string and I just start talking. That's what I do. So about anything doesn't really matter because I can do that. So, but I, I want to really, uh, prefer to address things in about these issues that you are interested in rather than me just talking. Um, and so I'm going to take these suggestions that the people in the room write and anything that you guys who are online send me as questions or issues you want me to address. And I will literally, that'll be my focus next week and the week and the, and the third session as well. Um, as some of you know, I've been the president of Grief Haven for 20 years now. Grief Haven is 20 years old for 20 years. Uh, started by our dear friends, Susan and Wendell after their daughter died, uh, Erica of blessed memory at 32. Um, so I've spent a lot of time with grief and uh, know it well. And I'm happy just to have a whole session just talking about grief and grief goes as well, which I will definitely do because I'm sure someone will ask about it. Um, and, you know, to know, they told me I was supposed to do this for an hour, so I think I'll stop in a second. But, um, you know, the one thing that we know for sure about grief is that grief has a life of its own. And uh, it takes you where it takes you. And <clears throat> my favorite image, metaphor, I suppose, for grief, with this whole end tonight, I think, is um, to imagine that you're in a little rowboat in the middle of a river without oars. And the river is the journey of grief. And it takes you. And sometimes you're lucky and the river is kind of calm and you're floating. And then all of a sudden, you go over a fall and come crashing. And then you smooth out again and then you come crashing. And you may do that for your whole life, the whole rest of your life once you start grieving. 
because one of the things we know for sure about grief is it's not something you get over. You don't get over the death of someone. Changes, your grief changes. You know, we've got several psychologists on this thing that will tell you the same thing. Changes, it evolves, but you don't get over it because the person that died doesn't come back to life. You know, they come back to life, I'll get over my grief, but they're not. So you live with it, you learn from it, you it changes, it evolves. <clears throat> the other image that I someone told me today was uh, an image of the something at amusement parks that I hate and detest and would never get on. You know those things at amusement parks that look like boats and they go like this? Mm-hmm. I look at it, I get nauseous, right? I would never get on one of those. He said that, yeah, to them, that's what, that's their image of grief. You're in there and it goes, (laughs) and for one second, you feel okay. And then the other direction. And then for one second, when it gets to that, it's got your breath and then it goes back again because it's never ending one way or another. Okay. So. Um, I apologize if I didn't say anything that was of any interest to you and that you came thinking I was going to talk about something else. But you showed up, and this is me, and stream of consciousness, Rabbi Rubin. Um, and I do have lots of information about Jewish attitudes about death and dying and afterlife. But as I said, going forward, I really want to see what kind of questions you have so that I can uh, respond specifically to those, and you will actually hear something that you want to hear about. Um, That's the story for tonight. And I will be back here next Monday night at 7 o'clock, responding to whatever things people have written down or whatever you send me. And thank you all for logging on. And thank you all for being here in, in the room.